Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Autogas First Quarter 2021 Financial Results Conference Call. My name is Valerie, and I will be the operator for today's call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. If you have any difficulties here in the conference, please press star then zero for operator assistance or at any time. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. As a reminder, this conference call is being broadcast live on the internet and recorded. I would now like to turn the conference call over to Adam McKnight, Director, Investor Relations. Please go ahead, Mr. McKnight. Thanks, Valerie. And good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for Altagas's first quarter 2021 financial results conference call. Speaking on the call this morning will be Randy Crawford, President and Chief Executive Officer, and James Harbillis, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer. Also joining us here this morning uh, is Randy Toon, Executive Vice President and President of our Midstream business, Lou Jenkins, Executive Vice President and President of our Utilities business, and John Morrison, Senior Vice President, Investor Relations and Corporate Development. In addition to the first quarter press release, financial statements, and MD&A that were released earlier today, we've also published a first quarter earnings summary presentation. This presentation walks through the quarter and highlights some of the key variances and non-recurring items that we would assume will be helpful for the market to understand. And it is available on our website under events and presentations. As always, today's prepared remarks will be followed by an analyst question and answer period. And I'll remind everyone that we will be available after the call for any follow-up or detailed modeling questions that you might have. We'll proceed on the basis that everyone has taken the opportunity to review the press release and our first quarter results. As for the structure of the call, we'll start with Randy Crawford, providing some comments on our first quarter financial performance, recent progress on our strategic priorities, and what you can expect on the road ahead for Alta Gas. Followed by James Harbelis, providing a more detailed walkthrough of our financial results near-term outlook, and 2021 guidance. And then we'll leave plenty of time at the end of the call for Q&A. Before we begin, we'll also remind everyone that we will refer to forward-looking information on today's call. This information is subject to certain risks and uncertainties as outlined in the forward-looking information disclosure on slide two of our investor presentation, which can be found on our website and more fully within our public disclosure filings on both the CDAR and EGAR systems. And with that, I'll now turn the call over to Randy. Thank you, Adam, and good morning, everyone. As an organization, we have undergone significant changes over the past two years in terms of focus, process, and business optimization. And we believe the fruits of that labor were demonstrated in our operating results this quarter. Despite the ongoing effects of COVID-19 and the headwinds associated with the U.S. dollar exchange rate, we delivered a record quarter with strength across the platform and are well positioned to execute upon our durable 2021 and beyond growth prospects. Our global exports and midstream platform achieved record throughput and profit. Our utilities platform continued 
to profitably deploy capital, control costs, and improve returns. And our finance team continued to lower our debt costs, and we are well positioned to continue to reduce our leverage ratios over 2021. As a result of these factors, we grew normalized EPS by 63% year-over-year in the quarter. Excluding the profits from the U.S. transportation and storage business, run rate normalized EPS increased 35% year-over-year and aligns with Altagas' focus on delivering durable and growing EPS and FFO per share that supports steady dividend growth and provides the opportunity for ongoing capital appreciation. Our utility segment continues to demonstrate ongoing resiliency and improved financial performance, where we continue to prioritize the health and safety of our employees, customers, and stakeholders. Excluding one-time items, our U.S. utility business delivered 11% year-over-year EBITDA growth in U.S. dollar terms. Through the combination of our judicious management of our costs, acute capital discipline, and profitable investments we are making to upgrade our infrastructure, we are driving both improved financial results and customer outcomes. The performance seen in the quarter continues to align with the strong long-term growth trajectory projections that we have shared with you in the past. Through the recently approved Maryland and D.C. rate cases that came into effect March 26th and April 1st, we continue to improve upon our ability to earn our allowed returns on the invested capital. The advancement of our network upgrade plans through the utilization of ARP programs continues across our jurisdictions. The investment of this incremental capital remains focused on reducing leaks, lower operating costs, and ensuring that we are well positioned to continue to deliver affordable, reliable, and lower carbon natural gas for our 1.7 million customers, while preserving the optionality of carbon-free solutions in the future. Based on the progress we have made this quarter, I remain confident that we will close the remaining 150 basis points of ROE gap through 2021, which will allow our shareholders to realize appropriate rates of return on their invested capital across our utilities in 2022 and beyond. We also realize robust performance across our recently expanded midstream operations. Excluding the larger-than-expected profits from the U.S. transportation and storage business in the quarter, Altagas midstream platform continued to show strong growth, including a full quarter of consolidation of Petrogas to deliver more than 85% year-over-year EBITDA growth. The midstream business is currently firing on all cylinders, with solid volume growth realized across our integrated platform. We continue to see strong demand for Canadian LPGs in Asia, and activity and production volumes continue to increase around our Montany-focused platform in Northeast BC. We also are witnessing a strong rebound in production volumes in our non-Montany footprint. It's only been four months of combined operations since the acquisition and consolidation of Petrogas, but the strength and efficiency of the assets, combined with the increased scale and reach of the expanded platform and the bolstered expertise of the combined workforce is exceeding our expectations. Given the headwinds of building new fossil fuel-related export assets in the U.S., we believe that our Ferndale facility is not only strategic, but extremely valuable. Ferndale's highly efficient operation and dual product optionality located on the western U.S. coast is difficult to replicate and creates a competitive advantage related to the delivery of cleaning burning LPGs to Asia. We are realizing the benefits of operating both export facilities through greater optionality and flexibility in terms of supply and logistics and the allocation of propane and butane between the two terminals, 
as well as the benefits associated with integrating Petrogas other transportation and storage related assets. During the quarter, we exported a record average of 85,000 barrels a day of propane and butane to premium markets in Asia, improving Canadian realized pricing as we continue to connect more Canadian production to global markets. Both export terminals are performing very well and in line with our strong expectations. Overall, our expanded midstream and energy platform provides us with great operational scale and commercial optionality, allowing us to provide better service and improved outcomes for our customers. Last Friday, we took another step forward in advancing our strategy to refocus the company on our two core businesses while continuing to strengthen and delever the platform and reduce the volatility of cash flow through the monetization of our U.S. transportation and storage business. We were excited about closing this transaction as it accelerates our timeline of getting to our target of being 5x net debt to normalize EBITDA, and it brings us closer to contemplating the journey that we have been on in the past two years. We're also fortunate in our timing. To be able to sell the business after a strong financial contribution in the first quarter related to the weather-driven gas pricing volatility, to recognize an incremental source of funds that augment this deleveraging event. We are now positioned to reduce our net debt to normalize EBITDA ratio by up to 0.5x over the course of 2021 relative to the approximate 5.6 run rate level we exited 2020, and we remain focused on further de-risking the platform over the long term. We are proud of the fact that for two years running, we have delivered normalized EPS growth that has materially eclipsed all of our U.S. gas utility and Canadian midstream peers. Our stock performance has followed suit and eclipsed all of our U.S. utilities and Canadian midstream peers over this period. The strong performance we achieved in the first quarter provided the confidence to increase guidance that now, when using the midpoint for 2021, represent 22% year-over-year earnings per share growth. The progress made during the first quarter positions Alta Gas to drive strong stakeholder outcomes in the year ahead and continue to build a platform that is focused on long-term sustainability. We believe this is a testament to the perseverance and steady progress that we have made towards executing our strategy and delivering on our priorities, and it's a true reflection of the significant potential that lies within our diversified platform. As we continue to move towards a more decarbonized ecosystem, we believe natural gas to be a critical part as the transition fuel of the future. Our utilities network is comprised of critical infrastructure that enables us to deliver low-carbon natural gas today and provides a foundation for the delivery of carbon-free solutions in the years ahead, including renewable natural gas and hydrogen. We remain focused on executing upon our climate business plan and are confident that we will be very well positioned for the energy transition that is upon us. We are committed to exploring and defining the next steps to introduce renewable natural gas and hydrogen into our natural gas distribution system. There will be more information to come in the quarters ahead as we explore and position ourselves to execute on this promising opportunity. In summary, we've achieved record EBITDA growth, which allowed us to increase our earnings guidance for 2021. Successfully integrated the Petrogas acquisition to achieve outstanding year-over-year growth in the midstream business made significant progress towards earning our allowed rate of return at the utility, and positioned ourselves to further reduce our debt and improve our leverage metrics. And with that, I will turn the call over to James to dig into the operational and financial results of the quarter in more detail. Thank you, Randy, and good morning, everyone. 
We are pleased to be here today to discuss our strong first quarter results, our increased 2021 guidance, and the monetization of our U.S. transportation and storage business that we announced last Friday. The latter of which should drive an estimated $485 million of near-term deleveraging and accelerate Altigas towards our target of being below five times net debt to normalize EBITDA. Specific to the first quarter, we were very pleased with the record financial performance that we produced, which builds on the financial and operational improvements we have demonstrated over the past two years as we reposition the platform and sharpen our focus on delivering durable and growing EPFs and FFO per share, which supports steady dividend growth and provides the opportunity for ongoing capital appreciation. During the first quarter of 2021, this included normalized EPS of 129 compared to 79 cents in the first quarter of 2020, representing a 63% year-over-year increase. Normalized FFO per share of $2.08 compared to 151 in the first quarter of 2020, representing a 38% year-over-year increase. And normalized EBITDA of $674 million compared to $499 million in the first quarter of 2020, representing a 35% year-over-year increase all of which was underpinned by solid performance across the entire platform. As we highlighted in the earnings release, the U.S. transportation and storage business generated $80 million in normalized EBITDA over and above what we had originally forecast as we positioned the business to realize strong profitability from strong pricing moves in the U.S. natural gas market while meeting the demand arising from the February winter storm that gripped parts of the continent. Overall, core performance in the quarter aligned with Altigas's corporate focus of delivering durable and growing EPS and FFO per share that supports steady dividend growth and provides the opportunity for ongoing capital appreciation. Specific to the business units, the utility segment reported normalized EBITDA of $371 million compared to $369 million in Q1 2020. Strong operating performance across the segment was largely offset by a $20 million unfavorable move in the U.S. to Canadian dollar exchange rate and $16 million in negative headwinds associated with the sale of Altigas Canada, Inc. and the Virginia adjustment that were present in Q1 2020. Excluding these one-time headwinds, utilities EBITDA was up 11% in U.S. dollar terms. Our growth continued to be underpinned by ongoing system upgrades that are focused on improving the safety and reliability of the network, reducing leak rates, and driving better environmental outcomes, all of which are focused on serving our customers. During the first quarter, the utility segment experienced slightly colder weather across all our utilities with the exception of Alaska compared to the first quarter of 2020. I would also remind everyone that we have weather normalization mechanisms in place at Virginia and Maryland, our two largest operating jurisdictions, which protects our customers and Altigas from large weather-driven volatility in any given quarter. WGL had a solid quarter with normalized EBITDA of $276 million compared to $278 million in Q1 2020. Excluding a $15 million negative impact of foreign exchange and the one-time impact of Virginia rate case adjustment of $8 million in the first quarter of 2020, WGL's run rate normalized EBITDA increased approximately $21 million, or 8% year-over-year. Notable drivers include higher revenue from ongoing system improvements and ARP spending, lower operating expense, and continued customer growth, which were partially offset by ongoing impacts related to COVID-19. We continue to make solid progress towards earning our allowed returns at WGL through a combination of capital, regulatory, and cost discipline. 
Semco and NSTAR's combined normalized EBITDA was $82 million in the first quarter, down $4 million for the same period last year. Removing the negative impact of foreign exchange fluctuations, which totaled $5 million, Semco and NSTAR's run rate normalized EBITDA increased by approximately $1 million as the colder weather in Michigan was largely offset by warmer weather in Alaska compared to the first quarter of 2020. And finally, normalized EBITDA from retail energy marketing business was $13 million in the quarter, an increase of $17 million year over year, driven by favorable gas margins and pricing, and the absence of widespread shutdowns experienced by CNI customers as a result of COVID-19 that occurred last March. Within our midstream segment, we reported a record $304 million of normalized EBITDA in the first quarter of 2021, compared to $120 million in the first quarter of 2020, which represented a 153% year-over-year increase. This included robust profits from the U.S. transportation and storage business, as well as strong performance across the Canadian midstream operations. If we adjust for the larger-than-expected performance from the U.S. transportation and storage business, midstream run rate EBITDA was still up approximately 87% year-over-year, including a full quarter of consolidating petrogas. EBITDA from global exports increased to approximately $7 million during the first quarter of 2021, reflecting Petrogas consolidation and combined shipments at Ripit and Ferndale of approximately 85,000 barrels per day of LPGs to Asia across 14 VLGCs. Our processing and fractionation business realized strong volume, volume increases across the midstream platform with a 10% year-over-year increase in total inlet volumes due to increased producer activity as a result of improving fundamentals and commodity prices. As has been the case in the past few years, we continue to benefit from our industry-leading footprint in the Montney as producers continue to complete drilling programs and increase production at our recently expanded Townsend and North Pine facilities, a trend we expect to continue in the coming period. We remain focused on managing risks in the midstream business and reducing commodity price exposure and volatility. We had approximately 95% of our frack exposed volumes hedged at $26 a barrel and realized an average frack, frack spread of approximately $15 a barrel after transportation costs. Approximately 60% of global exports projected volumes are collectively hedged, including our long-term tolling agreements. The balance of volumes are de-risked through FEI to North American financial hedges that average approximately $11 US per barrel for propane and butane. Depreciation amortization expense for the first quarter of 2021 was 99 million compared to 105 million for the same quarter in 2020. The decrease was primarily due to lower US midstream amortization and lower foreign exchange rates, which were partially offset by new assets placed into service and the amortization on the consolidated Petrogas assets. Interest expense was $70 million, was in line with last year. Overall, higher debt balances and lower capitalized interest was offset by lower average interest rates. Turning now to our 2021 guidance and capital plan, we have increased our 2021 financial guidance ranges to reflect our robust start to the year and the confluence of tailwinds and headwinds that have unfolded since our initial guidance back in December of 2020. This includes increasing our 2021 normalized EPS guidance range to 165 to 180 per share from 145 to 155 previously. This represents 22% year-over-year growth using the new midpoint. We also increased our 2021 normalized EBITDA guidance range to 1.475 billion to 1.525 billion 
from 1.4 to 1.5 billion previously. This represents 15% year-over-year growth in normalized EBITDA using the new midpoint. Our 2021 CapEx outlook remains unchanged at approximately $910 million. The majority of that capital budget is being allocated to the utility segment, which is focused on system upgrades that drive better customer outcomes. We were also pleased to, to announce the sale and closing of a transaction to monetize the U.S. transportation and storage business last Friday for total proceeds of $344 million. This non-core asset sale represents another important step in advancing Altagas's strategy of refocusing the company on its two core businesses while continuing to reduce leverage and reduce the volatility of cash flows. This is a continuation of what has been a multi-year journey as we reposition Altagas and we are pleased to be nearing our goal of getting to five times net debt to normalized EBITDA. This concludes our prepared remarks and we would be happy to turn it over to Q&A. Operator. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now conduct the analyst question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, press star then one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, press the pound key. There will be a brief pause while we compile the Q&A roster. And your first question will come from the line of Patrick Kenny of National Bank. Yeah, good morning. Uh, just on the propane export business, looks like the tolling arrangements are still at just 15% of the, uh, the 90,000 combined capacity. I thought it was closer to 20% previously, but I just wanted to confirm that there have been no incremental long-term commitments made, you know, after the uh, April 1st. NGL supply recontracting season, and I guess if not, maybe an update on you know how your discussions are progressing with some of your larger gas processing customers that you know might be interested in in locking in their export capacity on a long term basis. Yeah. Hey, good morning, Patrick. Thank you for the question. Um, you, you, first of all, uh, you're, you're right. We're currently at 35% toll uh, at, at RIPID, and and we are targeting uh, higher percentages post the a- April. You know, conversations have been constructive, and, and we speak with them you know, regularly you know, to, to secure additional tolling volumes. I think just to give you more, you know, back up on, on, a, on, a, on a longer term, you, you look at this and you said our, our, our capabilities and efficiencies that, that we've created of having these two West Coast export facilities have, have really put us in a position that producers, you know, you know certainly are, can't ignore the value proposition that we're, we're proving to them. and. And the recent strengthening in the fundamentals and improving commodity prices is really starting the conversation, and we're seeing increased interest by producers um, and aggregators who, who want to be participating to upside. And, and, and quite frankly, you know, some of the consolidation um, that's occurred uh, as well uh, with larger balance sheets uh, and customers able to make longer-term commitments uh, it makes us optimistic that we'll continue to strengthen uh, our position there. But thank you, Patrick. Oh, that's great, Randy. And I know it's still early days in the uh, you know nearby Watson Island um, terminal being online. But any comment on having to compete for volumes or contracts, or are you servicing completely different markets? And and we should not expect any near-term pressure on volumes or margins at at Ripit or Ferndale. Yeah, we don't see that the startup of Watson Island is going to have any significant impact on on our business. Um, you know, we believe that the Canadian propane market is 
is going to continue to be, be over, oversupplied, and the Montney continues to see strong drilling activity um, and, and remains a top play in North America. Um, you know, overall, though, when you think about our assets, intrinsically, you know, the assets are great. It gives us a return on the investment that's outstanding. And the intrinsic value of the dislocation of values, propane, the ability to R, propane, and butane, what that does is it provides us an incredible value that no one, including Watson, can, can replicate. And, and so, you know, we're not a one company. We've, we've acquired these assets, and we can move far more propane than prior to the acquisition. And, and we also have the ability, as I said, when prices line up differently between the two products to ship more butane uh, and, and propane uh, or vice versa. So our position in the industry is leading. Uh, the two facilities with the optionality access to the Asian markets, and, and we, 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 when we look out there, we don't see others that have that ability. So the overall, Watson Island, smaller boats, uh, different markets, um, and, uh, and it essentially has some commercial um, challenges. Okay, that's great. Thanks for confirming that. And then just for James, maybe um, just with the improved visibility here towards reaching your sub-five times leverage target, any update on your discussions with S&P regarding, you know, moving to triple uh, B mid rating, or is that still dependent on executing a sale of MVP? Hey, Patrick. No, it's a good question. I mean, at, at the end of the day, uh, it would be fair to say that the sale of the U.S., transportation storage business is moving us a little faster than uh, we had originally anticipated towards that five times net debt to EBITDA goal. We've just come through a ratings update and, and uh, confirmation process with S&P late in 2020 and, and so far, uh, you know, and, and other rating agencies and so far we're exceeding uh, some of the forecasts that we've put in front of them. So I, I think that this is something we will discuss with them uh, as we enter the uh, ratings review cycle later this year. Um, but, you know, if you look at the report, it would be a couple of years of us uh, hitting FFO to debt targets that are in the 14 to 15% range that would uh, trigger an upgrade. Okay, that's perfect. Thanks, guys. I'll, I'll leave it there. And the next question will come from the line of Ben Pam of BMO. Hi, thanks, good morning. I had a couple of questions on the U.S. storage sale. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned a sell ratio of, of debt reduction. I was just curious about what you meant by that. Is it six months, one month, and any sense of when you, you think you can get to the, the five times target? Is it next year or the year afterwards or, or something more medium term? James, you want to you take that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, you know, when we uh, released the, uh, the press release on the U.S. midstream sale, we've, we've clearly identified that if uh, you look at our run rate EBITDA at the end of 2020 and add a full year contribution from Petrogas, we would have been at about 5.6 times net debt EBITDA. This sale will take about 0.5 turns of leverage off of that. So we're starting to get close to that five times net debt EBITDA. Looking out into 2022, you know, obviously, if you layer in uh, some, some growth that we forecasted being contributed by uh, rate-based investments, and uh, it, then we will move closer to that five times. For us to get below it, you know, we, we obviously have additional dry powder uh, at our disposal and levers to pull with some additional non-core assets that we haven't moved on at this point. We continue to identify MVP as a non-core asset, but we're going to continue to be patient with that asset so that we fully de-risk it and, and increase the value and, and move forward with the process at that point, which should take us below five times net debt EBITDA. All right, that's great. And, and, and also, it's, it's an interesting 
uh, transaction because you, you do know at a time where the volatility is increasing and, and you know, on a trailing basis, it looks like you got a good multiple and on a forward basis, maybe not so much. So I know you, like, do, you do you characterize this transaction as more accretive to your balance sheet versus accretion to your EPS or your, your unlevered uh, EBITDA? You know, I think it, 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 when you think about this transaction and the asset itself, right, it's, it's uh, pretty much of a, of a non-core asset. And the business is really, if you think about the business and the contractual business of storage and transmission, it really has the, what you do in that business is it has the intrinsic value that you hope to cover your cost. And then you, 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 you set yourself up with the opportunity with intrinsic value that may happen one out of five or, we believe, ten years uh, um, and so for us, uh, very much of a non-core asset, very small impact overall to earnings, and it presented us with an opportunity to, you know, to delever uh, significantly. And, and we, we made a strategic and important decision to hold those assets through the end of the quarter for that opportunity, and uh, I think the team did an excellent job. Okay. And I wouldn't mind just adding... Sorry, I, I just wanted to add to on, on from an earnings standpoint, it, it's actually going to be somewhat. It's going to be neutral from an EPS standpoint. Just if you look at the contribution it's had, on average over the last five years of about 16 million dollars, and and you, you basically take interest expense out from proceeds that we're going to use to repay debt, and the depreciation and amortization that we'll uh, avoid because of uh, the derecognition of that asset on sale, then it would be neutral to earnings going forward. Okay, that, that makes sense. You're just so you're ignoring this 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 windfall this this year, which makes a lot of sense, and using that that, that historical average. Okay, um, and then maybe the other thing is the MVP. Any any change uh, with uh, I just haven't had time to go through everything. Any change with some of the accounting, like AFVCC, and and uh, uh, anything going on there? So I just saw some notes on AFVCC. Well, I'll let James talk about the AFUDC, but you know, my, more broadly speaking, right? I think we believe and continue to be confident that the pipeline will get built, uh, and that it's a very critical asset for reliability um, in the U.S. Uh, in terms of the build out of the electric uh, grid as well. So, but specifically the AFUDC, do you want to address that, James? Yeah, and then we we did record uh, AFUDC through 2020 on on the construction of that project uh, ourselves and and the consortium partners on MVP all ceased recognition of AFUDC as it moves its way through the remaining uh, milestones that it needs to achieve to to get to in-service state. So 2021 will not have any AFUDC in our uh, EBITDA or EPS numbers. Okay, perfect. Okay, thank you. And the next question will come from the line of Robert Catalia of CIBC Market Capital Markets. Yes, thank you, and uh, good morning. Uh, congratulations on the sale of the U.S. transport business. But uh, just a, a follow-up there. Um, it, you know, how do you look at the how that impacts um, future asset sales? For example, uh, just picking one at random, Blythe. Um, is it easier to just sell it and clean up the story, or do you now have the financial flexibility to hold out for top dollar? And, you know, on a similar vein, we're seeing some very strong valuation on uh, utility sales in the market. So is there any incentives to maybe look at non-core utilities as uh, deleveraging candidates? 
Well, thank you, Robert. I, you know, thanks for the question. Um, the last half, sure, we're always looking at opportunities to uh, to look at our portfolio and, and to the extent that we can't leverage and grow those assets, uh, we would look at that. But you know, more broadly, right, more broadly, the, the deleveraging um, that we have done has been, I think, significant, and it's put us in a position where we can use our dry powder on some of these other non-core assets. Um, so that's where we'll be, you know, certainly, uh, as we did with our non-core uh, transportation and storage assets, uh, we'll be opportunistic. Uh, but we are in, uh, I think, an excellent position to move forward to, to fund our, our growth plans and to continue to create shareholder value. So it hasn't really okay. changed. It's just put us in an, even a better position going forward. Right. Okay, and so um, I, I wonder if you could comment on the, the outcome of the recent Maryland case, um, you know, it, how you characterize that income. It looks like it was a, quite a bit short of the application. And so uh, at the same time, it, you're still holding to your view of uh, being able to achieve um, authorized returns. So could you just square that up for us, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, the order was uh it was ultimately a settlement uh, on our happy in, in terms of the uh you know, the return on equity and the capital structure were consistent to to what we had previously been earning on and and so when we look at our business going forward, um our strong rate-based growth uh in, in earning our allowed return, we're looking at our overall operational excellence model. And uh, you know, Blue and his team have done a tremendous job in terms of capital discipline. Uh Judicious cost management and improving the customer value proposition. So yeah, we're you know we're very bullish and and we continue to remain on target to earn our allowed return. Okay, last question for me. I know it's quite early, but uh, has the uh, the change in the carbon tax or the expectation of a CCUS tax credit opened up any opportunities for Altagas? We know it's early, right? And there's a there's a a lot to unpack in, in, in a variety of these Biden's uh, proposals around infrastructure and area. But but really, I think uh, overall in, in some of this, we'll be looking at uh, really benefiting in the utility and our existing kind of relationship and infrastructure that connects our 1.7 million customers. So as we look forward uh, on projects such as hydrogen, it appears to have some options that can leverage our asset and customer base and provide significant environmental benefits. Uh, you know, we'll be looking at those uh, opportunities, and in particular, uh, and it's early, there's a hydrogen production tax credits and some of the other proposals. So, you know, we'll be looking at that, uh, but again, it's uh, it's really early. That's going to be, I think, months down the road. Yeah, okay. Thank you. After the next question, we'll come from the line of Andrew Kuski of Credit Suisse. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, Maybe the first question just starts with with Randy, and it really um, revolves around your hedging program, and we appreciate the details that you have on a quarterly basis. But if you could maybe just talk about just the philosophy of the hedging program on the midstream side of your business and how you're approaching this, you know, what's what's changed in the current market environment or what's remained the same? Yeah. Hey, Andrew, thank you. Nice to talk to you. I, you know, as James mentioned, we have approximately 60% of the volumes locked in this year. Um, Really, when we look at it, we're managing you know, terms of our, our cash flow and earnings, um, but we leave a certain amount of those positions only because it provides us the flexibility for opportunistic pricing and, and supply movement. So we tend to go into the year with a target around those levels, and then we, we charge the commercial team to optimize that going forward, and then we'll be continuing to look forward into 2022. And in addition to that, we have to we, we calculate 
you know, our forecast on, on ultimate tolling volumes as well and incorporate that into our hedging strategy. So that hasn't changed, uh, and we continue to be focused on increasing uh, the tolling percentages as well. We appreciate that commentary. And then, and then maybe just looking through, like, the top of the house lens, and, you know, obviously Dollar Canada has moved a lot. How do you think about just the FX hedging approach or lack thereof uh, from a philosophical standpoint for the organization? Well, James done a great job of that. I'm going to let him address it. I'll address it at a high level. We have two aspects that go here, right? We have our U.S. denominated debt, so as that changes, as opposed to some of the cash flows and EBITDA that come back. Uh, so there's a, a, an inherent hedge there. But James, I'll let you address it more specifically. Yeah, Andrew. I mean, we've uh, we said in the past that we don't undertake uh, translational uh, hedging. Um, so we, we do look at transactional hedging to try to lock in margins on uh, some of our exports, but on, a, on the translational side, we don't. And, and even though there is a reduction uh, to EBITDA, I mean, when you drop down to ratios like EPS and, and our debt metrics, uh, just given the fact that we've got U.S. dollar denominated debt in, uh, and, and U.S. dollar EBITDA, there's uh, no real material impact to our earnings per share debt ratios as a result. Appreciate that. And then one final one, if I may, and I know it's still early days. Do you foresee any impacts just from uh, the commentary that came out of the Canadian budget in relation to interest deductibility? Yeah, I mean, we've we've looked at this on a preliminary basis. We don't anticipate any any issues with uh, the debt that we've got at ALA and and the profits that we're generating within our Canadian business units. I, I don't think we're going to be captured by those uh, those rules at this point. And we continue to reduce leverage, so I think we're, we're in good shape there. That's good. Thank you very much. Thank you. And the next question will come from the line of lender, Azagalas from TD Securities. Thank you. Uh, some of my questions have already been answered, but I'm, I'm wondering maybe you can just um, give us a bit more context around um, hitting your run rate of operational efficiencies and synergies with uh, Petrogas and Ferndale, how would you characterize in, in terms of uh, the extent to which you think you've, you've realized what's possible versus how much more there is in the first quarter uh, versus uh, how you might continue to, uh, to uh, ramp that up and when you might hit your full run rate of uh, efficiencies and uh, synergies? Good morning, Linda. Thank you for the question. Um, you know, we're look, we're in the early days of the integration, so I'm, uh, you know, I think that we are, are just beginning to scratch the surface of what we can do to, as we uh, align these two businesses going forward. You know, I told you, you know, broadly, you know, it gives us the ability to load more ships. We have more, far more tools in our toolbox around logistics and optimization. Um, and so I'm, um, again, I think that we'll be working through this year to to continue to optimize them. I think the two teams have come together very well. So we'll continue to look at, you know, our, our rail cars, our, our, uh, a lot of the logistics. I've said before, we're an energy export and logistics company, and the team continues to, to drive value. So um, yeah, early stages of what we ultimately can achieve, in my judgment. Okay. And, you know, clearly the, the outlook for the uh, whole industry has improved in Western Canada. I'm, I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of 
uh, how we might think of uh, the volumes continuing to ramp up in your midstream business and what sort of uh, incremental commercial agree agreements or commitments that you might um, realize from producers uh, over the next uh, nine months, I guess, as you as you continue in the year. Well, we, we clearly we don't want to get into some of our specific negotiations, but I think um, the trend has been a friend. The mobility uh, around the world is continuing to pick up, and energy demand is following suit, um, and that's good for the uh, upstream producers. We're fortunate in the extent that the investments that we've made in our assets uh, have available capacity, uh, particularly in uh, at Townsend uh, in North Pine, and so we continue to see ramp up there. Um, you know, it, over the longer term, uh, continue to uh, um, provide what I believe to be the best market in Canada uh, for LPGs, uh, and you'll see us continuing to increase volumes there and make longer-term commitments with producers going forward. So we're in a really good position as volumes continue. Now, producers have said they're going to be disciplined, and but we'll continue to uh, improve uh, our efficiencies and cost structures, and I expect that you'll, we'll We'll continue to have uh, volume growth trends uh, ramping up over the next year. Thank you. And just a final follow-up. Um, in the past, Altigas has expressed um, an, a willingness to consider um, petrochemical investment opportunities uh, in Western Canada uh, with your expanded NGL capabilities and optionality. Uh, would you consider any sort of petrochemical uh, investments, whether it's a partial interest in a joint venture uh, or um, uh, other other initiatives. So, so Linda, we think. Uh, look, let me. I say this: that we're primarily focused on our integration and optimization of our assets, uh, and that we continue to see opportunistically uh, ability to deploy capital there uh, organically. Uh, but, you know, as we look forward, it's similar to what we did with Petrogas, um, you know, to continue to leverage uh, in our distinctive capability around our export capacities, um, we would really be looking more on organic growth. But, but overall, I think we're unique in providing both access to domestic markets as well as um, our export volume. So, again, I don't see us uh, at this point moving in that direction. Uh, but clearly, I think our focus, and we believe to be the best market, uh, is uh, in Asia. Thank you. I'll jump back in the queue. And our next question will come from the line of Julian DeMallon Smith of Bank of America. Hi, good morning. It's uh, Darius Lozny on for Julian here. Um, just wanted to briefly uh, have you walk through some of the moving parts of your higher EBITDA guidance for 21. Obviously, it seems like it's higher due to the strong performance in the U.S. midstream segment that you discussed, um, but maybe talk through some of the other moving pieces, if you could, such as potentially uh, synergies from Petrogas, uh, FX Outlook, uh, and I assume the range is narrower because you're, you have a better sense of your hedging program. But if you could talk to some of those moving pieces, please, that'd be, that'd be great. Good question. I'm going to let James get into some. I'll just make a broad comment that, you know, we feel that we could be Again, above the midpoint, uh, if the Cal 21 stays strong and, and that it moves beyond that, but there's a there's a variety of uh, give and takes uh, in that, and I'll let James walk you through some of those particulars. James. Yeah. So uh, when obviously when we look back to where some of some of the factors were that we put into our guidance in um, December of 2020, some of the tailwinds that we're seeing right now that contributed to us moving up 
is obviously the contribution from the U.S. storage and midstream business, but we've also seen stronger frac spreads, and, and we've been able to lock in the majority of those. We're 95% hedged on frac spreads. We've seen higher volumes at our extraction facilities as well than, than what we had factored in, and, and obviously higher export volumes in our global export facilities. And Randy touched on it, stronger NGL pricing on, um, on C4s is something that uh, we've factored into some of our upside as well. And then on the headwind side, you know, you touched on the one that's the most material, it's FX. Um, you know, if you look at a full year impact to FX, it's about $45 million, just given where the FX rate is right now relative to where it was when we set that guidance. So those are some of the, the factors, the puts and takes that went into us tightening the range and moving the midpoint up by, uh, by $50 million. Okay, excellent. Thank you. One more, if I could. Um, on the sale of the U.S. transport and storage assets, can you maybe just talk about was that um, was that a segment or a business that you have been actively marketing, or did you just realize that the time was right for a sale given the conditions during Q1? You, you know, we 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 identify that as a non-core uh, asset, and we've been working you know, toward that. As I said in in the past, that there's a we continue to look at a deleveraging. We Made a, a business decision to uh, uh, to hold uh, the assets uh, through the winter heating season because of the nature of these assets, and uh, and then we went forward to, to monetize it. So we've been that's been in the works. Okay, thank you very much, and congratulations on a great quarter. Thank you. That's nice. Appreciate it. And the next question will come from the line of Rob Hope of Scotia Bank. Yeah, morning, everyone. Just uh, two follow-up questions for me. Uh, first off on the guidance, I just want to get a sense, was the uh, cancellation of AFUDC on MVP also contemplated there? And I guess when I take a look at kind of the moving parts there, the, the FX headwind will be offset you know, below, the, below the EBITDA line, and AFUDC is non-cash there as well. So fair to say that, you know, on a cash impact basis, you know, you're, you're still quite ahead of plan? Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. You could say that. James, I don't you want to comment on that. No, I think uh, I, I don't have anything to add to that, Randy. Yeah. Okay, so, so, no, so AFUDC was contemplated in the guidance. Originally, originally it was, yes, but obviously uh, as we got to year-end reporting and, and some of the impairments that took place in the consortium, partners decided not to recognize any more AFUDC. That, that became a headwind to EBITDA. Okay, uh, and then just a, another follow-up to Andrew's question previously. So you commented on the uh, interest deductibility. What about uh, any cross-border cross structures? Um, any potential thought that uh, you'd have to alter anything there or any potential impact from the federal government and uh, the structures you use across the border? Sorry, I didn't follow your question, Robert. Can you repeat that? Uh, the federal budget also talked about the potential to change uh, any cross-border structures on the tax basis. So I'm just wondering if any, if you repatriating any of your U.S. income into Canada could be uh, impacted by any of the changes no. in, the, in the budget. Okay. No, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be impacted by. Sorry, that's that's what I wanted to confirm. So it, it, the Canadian budget changes would not impact our ability to repatriate funds from the U.S. All right. Thank you. That's it. Thanks, Rob. And the next and the next question will come from the line of Robert Kwan of RBC Capital Markets. Great, good morning. 
Um, I'd like to come back to asset monetizations. And you know, while a, a key goal to date has been the benefit of deleveraging, um, you know, coming back to, to your answer earlier around the utilities, you know, does today's LDC transaction cause you to think more about the benefit of selling to drive value between you know what you think you can sell an asset at versus what's embedded in your share price? Or is deleveraging still the, the, the main focus and really what would drive um, asset sales? Yeah, I think you're more, you know, on, on the deleveraging is, is how we're really focusing uh, you know, to continue to, to drive down those metrics uh, and provide ourselves dry powder for opportunities going forward to, to fund the significant growth we see in both our midstream business uh, and our utilities uh, going forward. Um, you know, my comment on the utility is that we, we, we want to continue and we will continue to invest and grow those assets. But as we look at, at what the right mix there is, we'll always be looking at, 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 at every asset that we own to drive value for our shareholders. But, but I guess the difference between what you can sell it for versus the hold value is not um, really something that would cause you in and of itself to transact? What we, what I, the way I look at these assets, Robert, is that to the extent that we can add value, that we can continue to improve it, leverage the asset, and continue to, to, to grow earnings per share, uh, and that we bring a competitive advantage, that's what we'll do with these assets. And to the extent that we're not able to do that and they're non-core, then we will look toward monetizing them at fair value. But we're not in a position where we have to do any transactions as we were maybe two years ago. Understood. Um, if I can just finish with the growth that you're seeing in the Western Canadian midstream business. Do you see you know, more of that being driven by the optimization of, of your asset footprint with Petrogas, or do you still see it being fairly capital intensive uh, you know, with respect to building new infrastructure under contracts for, for producers and shippers? I think long-term there'll be additional investments in assets and on our integrated platforms and such, but right at this point we are fortunate to have uh, our network that provides producers access to very valuable markets. And I've learned in this business connecting producers to valuable markets and increasing their net back will attract more volumes to your platform, and that's what's happening here. Uh, and certainly we expect with low prices and prices increasing that you know, uh, there will be a reaction in terms of volumes, and that's what we're seeing, and that will only be more helpful uh, to filling up our our facilities. And just over that long term, um, if you look at some of those more capital-intensive projects, what are the top two or three opportunities that you see to add to your footprint? Well, look, I think as we look organically, first of all, we're looking at our logistics platform, right, and that we can – aggregate you know, rail and put uh, together more efficiency uh, around our, our cost structure and rail structure. Over the long term, right, uh, expanding in the fractionation side of the business uh, in our Northeast Montany uh, footprint uh, and continuing to build out infrastructure there and doing it in a, to the best extent possible in a modular uh, way uh, where the paybacks are, are faster uh, and that uh, there's not a lot of lag uh, is, is a model that we would look for. So to be able to take our assets continuing uh, to expand and leverage that footprint in a cost-effective and efficient manner is something that we would see capital uh, into the future. And I think we'll see many opportunities uh, uh, over the long term. Yeah, that's great. Thank you very much. Before we move on to the last question, I would like to remind participants that if you have any further questions, simply press star, then the number 1 
on your telephone. And the last question will come from the line of Jeremy Tonay of J.P. Morgan. Randy, good morning. How are you? Hey there, Jeremy. I'm doing well. Thank you. Good, good. Just a few questions for me, if I could, to round it out here. Just wondering, any thoughts you might be able to share with the Biden infrastructure bill? And there could be opportunities for infrastructure build out, but I guess I'm more curious on the tax side. With taxes moving up, how do you think that impact what could impact consumers? What could that do to build headroom? Just wondering any thoughts you might have on taxes there. Yeah. Great question, Jeremy, and thank you for it. I, I tell you, on, on the utility side, and you know this business quite well, I mean, you know, to the extent that um, you know, the Biden tax bill um, ultimately becomes law, and there'll be some time here, right, uh, it's probably, you know, uh, in terms of the utility, net uh, positive in terms of cash flows, right, and EPS neutral uh, going forward. And, you know, in terms of uh, – and so those, those costs would be passed on to, you know, to the consumer from that standpoint. And, and given that most of our, our operations uh, in the U.S. are utility-based, um, the, the impact would be small. Um, but clearly, in terms of petrogas in the U.S., other unregulated operations, you know, there's some give and takes there. There's, there's opportunities for other projects within the infrastructure bill that I alluded to that, that we're working on uh, in terms of other opportunities with consortiums, possibly, uh, again, around renewable natural gas and hydrogen and some things uh, as well that, uh, in terms of uh, carbon capture that we'll be looking at. So there's some, you know, some puts and takes uh, throughout the bill, and uh, I think we've got a long way to go to see exactly how that uh, plays out. Got it. Thanks for that. Um, just wondering uh, separately, I guess, uh, you know, carbon capture has been kind of uh, gaining a bit more attention with regard to the 45 Qs there. Uh, and even, you know, carbon tax in um, in, in Canada, you know, is, is kind of, I think, raising the profile of, of CCS as well. Just wondering any thoughts you might have as far as, uh, you know, this technology, whether uh, there could be some role for Alta to, to you know, it, it, use this, utilize this at some point in the future? Yeah, great question. And I think we're looking at that. We're looking at all aspects of this. And we've got a, good, and a very good, strong, long history of, uh, of being uh, you know, a leader in, in social purpose, delivering strong environmental stewardship. So as we go through this long, what I believe to be a long transition uh, in the energy ecosystem, we're, you know, one of the things that's really, I think, helpful uh, is what we're doing with Ripit and, and Ferndale. Uh, to deliver um, you know, lower carbon-intensive fuels um, to Asia and displacing some of the higher you know, carbon footprints, and that's of real value in the long term. I mean, in terms of the you know, technologies uh, and investments here, well, your carbon captures, uh, you know, I think um, you look at, you know, where we are with Ferndale, um, the refineries, uh, you need scale. Right? You need scale and more parties that are necessary to increase scale. So once we have that, I think that that's long-term, that's viable, and, and we'll look to participate where we can bring an, an advantage in terms of building pipes uh, around hydrogen or long-term carbon capture. So, again, long-term transition, our company will focus on what we uh, have core capabilities to do and where we'll participate in leveraging our skills going forward, Jeremy. So appreciate the broad question, though. Thank you. Got it. Just the last one, if I could. With regards to RNG, if you see any opportunities across your footprint there, just any thoughts in general? Yeah, a, a few. Again, in, 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 it's different in, in, in each one of our different jurisdictions. I think that uh, you know we see a couple of things uh, around our territory. I know Blue's on the call. Uh, Blue, did you want to add any, any comment on that respect? 
Yeah, I think from a macro perspective, Randy, you're spot on. So it, it varies across our jurisdictions. We, of course, when we think about RNG, we're looking much more broadly than perhaps just the traditional dairy farms or chicken farms based on where we operate. So we are active in dialogues and discussions, and you should expect to see some activity from us in that space as we move forward. Got it. I'll leave it there. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jeremy. And this concludes the Q&A portion of today's conference call. I will now turn the call back over to Mr. McKnight. Thanks, Valerie. Thank you, everyone, once again for joining our call today and for your interest in Ulta Gas. As a reminder, we will be available after the call for any follow-up questions that you might have. That concludes our call this morning. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, and you may now disconnect your phone lines. Thank you. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on Earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide-open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.